Hi, welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ. I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is Professor Michael Steele. I'm Michael Steele. I'm a professor at Macquarie University in the Department of Physics and Astronomy. For over 25 years, Mike has dedicated his life to researching photonics, the study of detecting, controlling and generating light. I had the opportunity to sit down with Mike to talk about his long career in photonics and how he got there in the first place. And so, um, and so what was it that got you into the position that you are today? So how, what was the journey like for you to get to get into science? Um, so as, a, as, as often turns out to be for most people, not quite linear. I, um, the one thing I knew when I was starting as an undergraduate is that I would not be going into optics. <laughs> um, I thought I was heading in a quite different direction. Optics was the most boring part of physics. And then, you know, as kind of happens, you, um, uh, I met a professor who had a, who taught a great course and got me interested and suddenly had a project and, and suddenly I was on a track into nonlinear optics. So I did my PhD there in, in Sydney. I did a, a couple of postdocs, one in New Zealand in um, what at the time was the very hot area of Bose-Einstein condensation of um, you know, uh, studying uh, a system of cold atomic gases that had, had been postulated by Bose and Einstein almost a century before and finally manifested. Um, and then I kind of moved pace again. I moved to uh, Columbia University in New York for a couple of years back into the optics space where I was um, kind of more focused on, on the question of um, well, optical systems that are close, more closely related to the communication system and the communications industry. Um, and then that was kind of around 2000, which was at the very height of the tech boom in optics um, when uh, there were many, many startups in the US, many, many different companies. And uh, I spoke to a lot and eventually um, I took a software job in California with a, a US uh, company that, that produced um, design software for photonics. So software for calculating um, the properties of, of photonic devices that would you know, typically again be used in the communication system. Um, and I did that for a couple of years in California and then came back and continued to do that um, remotely from Sydney. But at the same time, I was um, a kind of guest involved with um, the QDOS Center of Excellence, which was operating at Sydney University, a number of other nodes. Um, and so I, I all up, I was with that company for about seven years, um, but eventually I found that, um, you know, working remotely for a company when you're just one person on the continent, um, I was you know, achieving interesting things, but found that I was a little bit out of the influence loop and it was becoming time for a change. Um, and kind of by chance, I was kind of approached to see if um, coming back to the university system at Macquarie would be, would be interesting. Um, and ultimately I did that. So I, I joined Macquarie in 2007 um, and I've been there ever since. So I just want to go back to what you're talking about with the software company. So can you tell me a bit about that? What were you doing? What was the company all about? Yeah, so that, that company's um, Arsoft Design Group um, is the name. They're still around. They were bought out by a um, uh, what's called an EDA company. So a company that's really interested in design for silicon um, electronics. But the interface these days between silicon and optics is increasingly important. So there um, you have... You know, there are many, many companies at the time and still who are designing components um, 
to act as routers, as switches, as logic systems, laser systems, all of these different kinds of components that live right at the bottom of the internet, at the optical layer where all the physics that supports the miracle of the internet actually happens. And um, just like any other piece of technology, those systems require modeling and um, they're largely described by Maxwell's equations. So I was involved in um, designing software for and writing software to solve Maxwell's equations on different kinds of problems, but also very um, you know, service and customer oriented roles. So as well as um, writing the software, I was developing the documentation, visiting customers, supporting customers. You, you quickly discovered in a startup company that whatever your title might actually be, there's really only one department and it's sales. Mm. Yeah. Purpose, you know, everyone's purpose in a small company is to is to achieve sales by one means or another. And I actually found that quite fulfilling. Yeah. Um, uh, feeling that you were making, you know, that you were close to to the customer and making a difference for their their research and their technology development. I found that quite rewarding. Mm. It's interesting how far reaching you can find uh uh, physicists are in in different industries that you you wouldn't normally um, expect to find them. I, I think that's true. I mean, I think in this case, I'm not sure if that's quite the case here. Mm -hmm. I think um, we're that industry is probably fifty fifty, you know, yeah. electrical engineers yeah. and and optical physicists. That's fair enough. Um, but but definitely, there's kind of a continuum between you know the 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 pure theorists um the the design oriented theorists all the way to you know, the very practical electrical engineers and so um yeah so it's a really interesting industry that has changed the lives of you know every person on the planet with a computer mostly without anyone being aware of it so you know i think everybody is aware of the concept of silicon chips and everybody is aware of companies like intel and um, and all the, the software and hardware companies that live on top of them. Most people are not aware that there is an optics industry, that there is um, a back, you know, a, an infrastructure which supports the internet. Um, you know, many, many people still believe that, that most international messages travel across satellite. Uh, and the fact that, in fact, they travel through little pipes of glass underneath the oceans um, is quite foreign concept to to most people. You will still see TV stations um, talking about some show coming you know, from the United States or Europe, and they will literally say, "Hot off the satellite." <laughs> yeah. It has not come by satellite. It's come by wave pulses. <laughs> it's, it's come by optical fiber. Yeah, yeah. by light pulses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so long, there. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Nonlinear op I can't get it right. Nonlinear optics. There we go. Nonlinear linear optics. What has been your role in that field, and and how and what have you been doing? Yeah. Gosh. So um. So you know, I've been in this now for twenty five years or so. So many different things. Nonlinear optics. Ultimately, the the the, the name means um. What are, what are the behaviors of systems where light is sufficiently powerful or sufficiently intense that it can change the medium through which it's traveling and thereby sort of act back on it and change the properties of light traveling through it. So it's light that changes its own experience. Um, I've worked in a, a number of areas. I've been particularly focused many times on 
the question of making light of new frequencies. Um, one of the sort of traps or, or challenges of optics is that um, we don't necessarily have all the, the colors of light that we'd like to work with. Um, you know, there are many, many types of lasers, but in fact, um, you know, you can't necessarily go to a, a, a website and say, I'll have a laser of precisely this wavelength and this pulse duration and this energy. Um, and so nonlinear optics is one of the, the workhorses by which we can take um, a relatively small number of, of standard lasers, which work very well and are well understood and use them to generate um, new wavelengths of light that might have better properties, that might be more suited um, uh, for some of the purposes that you need. So in general, making new wavelengths has, has been a big part of, of what I've done at times. Over the sort of the first part of the last decade, um, I was particularly focused in the area of what we called quantum nonlinear photonics, which seems in many ways um, quite a contradiction in terms because nonlinear optics is what you do when you have high intensities of light and quantum optics is what you do when you're really counting the light photon by photon. Um, but in fact, it turns out that nonlinear optics is pretty much the best mechanism we have for creating quantum sources of light. So if you think of areas like um, quantum computing or, or quantum communications, there's a great need for um, reliable, efficient, um, high data rate sources of individual photons or of states of light, which are highly quantum in nature and which natural systems really don't want to give you. You, you can't, you won't trip across, trip over, you know, a single photon source or a, a source of light that, that gives you particularly quantum properties that would be useful for areas like quantum communications. Um, they don't, you don't find them lying around. Um, and it turns out that by um, shining bright laser, laser sources into the right kind of medium, whether it's a, a fiber or some crystalline material, you can actually generate almost as a byproduct sources of these um, very strangely correlated or, or very strangely distributed light sources, which are then ideal um, to operate as, as the driving fields or the, the input sources for, for optical quantum systems, quantum computers, et cetera. So those two are probably um, uh, big drivers. And then the last five, seven years, um, there's been a particular focus on the interaction of light and sound. So I, I most recently work in an area that we call um, optoacoustics or optomechanics. And this is where um, two wave phenomena that we, you know, we normally think of as very different and not having much to do with each other, light waves and sound waves, turns out they can actually work really closely together uh, to produce interesting devices and, and new effects in, in light wave systems that we don't know how to do otherwise. So what kind of devices and systems do we see that affect become useful? So one of the big motivation there is in the area of what we would call um, microwave communication systems. So if you think about the communications devices we use most commonly, mobile phones and the like, they all tend to operate um, uh, in the sort of the few frequencies of a few gigahertz. Um, you know, these are the things that the mobile phone towers um, operate in. Um, and those are frequencies 
uh, hundreds, thousands of times smaller than the frequencies at which light waves travel. And it means that providing an interface between light wave communications, which is how the global communication system works, and microwave communications, which is how our mobile phone systems work you know, on the citywide scale, they really don't want to talk to each other particularly well. But it turns out if you work with just the right kind of sound waves, and these are you know, not sound waves of the kind we're using now, these are much, much higher frequencies in, in the gigahertz. Um, and so many times higher, for instance, even than, than ultrasonic medical devices and things like that, this is a, another, regime altogether, we often call, um, sometimes call it hypersound. Um, these sound waves, uh, there's kind of a, a beautiful little triangle where the wavelength of light and the wavelength of these sound waves matches up quite nicely. So they're willing to talk to each other and interact. And the frequencies of these sound waves and the frequencies of our computer systems and our microwave communication systems, which all live at that few gigahertz level, they kind of match up as well. And so there's this sense that um, these hypersonic sound waves can live as a really convenient bridge between the optical communications world um, and, and the microwave communications. So you have two communications families, both based on electromagnetic waves, light and microwaves, um, but to, talk, to get them to talk to each other, um, we're quite in, in this technology, which are, you know, is very much a technology in development. It's not something that's you know, widely available yet. The idea is that these sound waves can add, act as a bridge between them and produce uh, you know, increase our ability to, to transfer information between light and sound or to produce um, unusual devices, which are difficult to make. One of the... Um, one of the holy grails of optics and particularly nonlinear optics is the creation of what we call optical isolators or optical diodes. So the, the concept of the diode is one that's very familiar in electronics, um, a, a device that will allow an electrical current to only flow one way. Uh, this is a very difficult thing to do in optics. Um, they're not uh, widely available, at least for, for things like fiber communications. And there's a, well, we're engaged in a project now whereby we think that this coupling between light and sound would enable us to develop uh, one of these new kind of diodes um, for light. And we really kind of need these to stabilize our system um, to, to make our light wave communications networks more robust, more stable. Uh, an optical isolator would be a great advantage to have. Um, how, sorry, I, this is something I was just chewing over when as you were saying that how how does it how does it actually work so how does the how does how do the hypersonic sound waves kind of bridge between the light pulse and the microwaves so there's kind of this there's a couple of effects going on but one way um you can sort of think of it from from either direction if you think of a sound wave um you know physically what's happening is that the material is um shaking back and forth or oscillating back and forth. And a sound wave, of course, is an actual series of compressions and, and expansions, or um, sometimes in, in these kinds of sound waves, they can actually move sideways. So unlike um, one of the things we learn in school is that sound waves have to be longitudinal waves. Um, in solids, that's not necessarily true. And so that's often not the case for us. 
But either way, you're really creating a density wave um, inside the material. Um, there are regions where the, the material is slightly compressed, regions where um, it's slightly extended. The motions themselves are tiny. We're talking about translations at the sub-nanometer scale. But nevertheless, it gives rise to these very tiny um, variations in density. And if the density of a material changes, so will its refractive index. And typically, you know, a, a less dense material has a slightly lower refractive index uh, uh, and vice versa. And so if a light wave is traveling through a material like this, where there are these propagating density waves, then the light sees that uh, essentially as a mirror or as a scattering surface and um, will bounce off, it will either bounce off or be scattered in one direction or another. And um, in fact, these kinds of periodic devices are, are very common in optics these days. We call them Bragg mirrors and they serve to, to act as filters or reflectors for light. But this is a very special kind of Bragg mirror because the sound wave and, and this periodic pattern of density variations or, or what we might call um, a Bragg mirror or a Bragg gradient, this is moving. So at the same time as it's acting to reflect the light, there's an additional effect, essentially a Doppler shift. Um, and so depending whether it's traveling towards that light wave or away from it, the light that's reflected also gets a frequency shift. And so again, it's another one of these ways that um, we can play with a property like the frequency of light, which is otherwise quite difficult um, to play with. But what's kind of neat is the reverse is also true. They, um, they, they kind of works both ways. So from the other point of view, if you think of a light wave traveling through, um, a light wave is a, is a series of electromagnetic waves. And so on the scale of a, of a micron or so, the local electric field inside the medium is rapidly oscillating back and forth. And it's creating little dipoles. That electric field is driving the electrons in the material in one direction and then in the other. And it's doing these to all the dipoles next to each other. And all those little dipoles then start to see each other. Um, and you have two dipoles lying next to each other. They have some charge that creates electromagnetic forces. And so the net effect is that the material um, locally kind of contracts or expands. I think of it as clenching or sort of unclenching. Uh, right. And because that's been driven by these uh, light waves at high frequency, that then causes the material to oscillate rapidly and regenerates a sound wave. And if you can get a whole bunch of things just right, you get the relative wavelengths, the relative materials just right, these two effects feed back on each other. It, there's a beautiful piece of history, in fact. Um, the, the concept of this interaction was first suggested um, uh, by a, a French physicist called Léon Briouin in um, about 1919. In fact, we've just celebrated its 100th anniversary and some colleagues and I are involved in putting together um, a book to celebrate this centenary. But um, in fact, the technology to really see this effect strongly didn't arise until the birth of the laser in the 1960s. Um, but shortly after that, uh, at the same period, optical fibers were being um, created and first invented. And you know, of course, people understood that if they could get light into a fiber and if, if the quality of the glass would be sufficient that the light could travel a long way, that this could genuinely 
revolutionize communications, although I don't think anyone imagined what would truly turn out to be possible. So this program was, was underway, lasers had been starting to be invented and the obvious thing to do was then start to, to point a laser down an optical fiber. This happened about 1963, 64. Um, and rather worryingly, the first thing that happened was all the light you put into the fiber came straight back. But instead of conducting the light down the fiber, which is kind of the whole point, it would be reflected back straight in your face from where you where you'd put the laser down. And that was literally this effect of Brewan scattering, it turned out, because this is an effect that works much more strongly in reflection than in transmission. Um, and so as soon as you put the laser down, you began to create these sonic or acoustic oscillations in the glass and it caused the reflection. And I think there was probably a momentary worry that this was going to be the death of optical communications, um, but it was, there were quickly um, workarounds, et cetera, followed and things have turned out okay. But um, it was a significant moment and one of the first demonstrations of a nonlinear effect in optics. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I mean, it's, the history of, 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 of physics and, and science itself is just so fascinating, I find. Um, I really want to talk to you about this more, but I'm running out of time on my meeting. Um, I was wondering if I could talk to you about how your work in nonlinear optics um, is related to astronomy, because uh, that was something that you also you mentioned that you're involved in. Is that is that something that's related, or is it something completely separate to separate fields? But for for me, it is. It's not particularly related. So so um, my own associations with astronomy over the last year have last few years have been purely from an administrative point of view. Fair enough. Um, in uh, you know being involved in establishing um, a consortium involved in developing optical instrumentation. Um, uh, as from the research side, um, they haven't been a crossover for me, but indeed, but within our, our community at Macquarie, um, there's very strong interaction between, um, between the fields of photonics and astronomy, and it's becoming ever more important to that photonics as a, a technology for making compact optical devices, you know, that can sit on a small chip like a silicon chip, um, many people believe that this will play an increasing role in the future of astronomy. And, and the reason is pretty easy to understand that as, as the very large telescopes get bigger and bigger, you know, to now the next generation of 30 or 40 meter diameter telescopes, um, the scale of the instrumentation that is required to support them becomes also larger and larger and more complex. And to date, everything that that is being performed on contemporary and even the latest um, astronomical systems remain what we call bulk optics. It's all individual components, lenses, mirrors, reflectors, all assembled into very large apparatus, literally the size of semi-trailers. And so, you know, a single instrument is is has costs of. 40, 50, up to $80 million perhaps by the time it's installed on a telescope. And the promise of photonics is that um, our ability to integrate you know, many, many functionalities onto a single circuit or a small range of chips to bolt them down to a table, to keep them thermally stable. Um, theoretically, the promise is you know, astronomy that could be um, much more precise, much more scalable, 
Um, but there are you know, substantial challenges uh, in getting there. One of the things in photonics that we tend to be pretty comfortable with is throwing away quite a lot of light because lasers are very bright and cheap. And most of the time for us, um, we don't have to be too fussed about preserving every photon. In astronomy, that's quite frequently quite the opposite. You, you build, partially you build these very, very large telescopes because you want to catch every single photon that you can. Um, when your photonics engineer says that you're going to throw two thirds or 80% or 90% of them away, um, that can be a bit of a deal breaker. And so quite prosaic issues of how do you bring the losses down? How do you get more light off the telescope through your photonics device you know, to your final detector and computer um, are some of the, the big challenges that remain in that area. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.